Hello and welcome to another episode of Is This Just Fantasy, a book club hosted by me, Geordie Bailey. And by me, Georgie's sworn sword, Duncan Nickel. Wow, Duncan, you're really putting me in high esteem there. Um, we've read uh, Malice by John Gwynn, and Sworn Swords and Blood Brothers are pretty important to this book. Oh, they are indeed, and it wasn't something I really knew going into it, because this book, for the first time on this podcast... Indeed. ...was a new pick. Like, we've always done that at least one of us hadn't read it before. This has kind of been yep, the vibe. We've never, book we've, never, we've never read a book which neither of us has ever read, and neither of us has an opinion on, but neither of us know what it's about. Absolutely. Like, this really was um, a pick based on... John Gwynn has a book he's out at the moment, which name I'm going to get wrong now. It's like the Bloodsworn Saga, or Bloodstone Saga. You got it. Bloodsworn yeah. Saga. Or, as I call it, the book series with the really big monsters on the front. They look so good, and I keep saying... They, looks, them... they look real good. Uh, this is a first for me. I've, put, I've purchased many a book because the cover is just so good. This is the first book I've bought because a different series the author wrote's cover was really good. Exactly. Like, I just seen it. Like, oh, I want to get into this. I want to read it. But for some reason, instead of picking them, I just went, no, let's take a step back. Let's see where John Gwynn got started. And he got started. Mm-hmm. His pu- first major published work is Malice, the first in the His Faithful debut. and the Fallen series. Now... We, before I pick this, neither of us have read Malice. We didn't have opinions. This is very fresh. Hell, I hadn't read anything by John Gwynn. Uh, mm-hmm. Geordie, nothing by John Gwynn? Nothing. Nothing. Such, like, a clean slate. Now, obviously, some people listening, coming to this book club, might not be in the same boat. So, I do want to kind of pick... Read any of John Gwynn's works. Please do, kind of, send your opinions in. Uh, is mm-hmm. this just fantasy podcast at gmail.com tell us what you think tell us about the rest of the series because even as we record we've only read malice you know mm-hmm. wh- where do things go maybe this is the peak of his career and it's all downhill from here <gasps> or maybe it's the opposite we don't mm. know we don't even know our, each other's opinions here like and now really... duncan it's time to find out i'm everyone so... remember send your emails to is this just fantasy at gmail.com that is our gmail no, no, it's not. Just it's just a fantasy podcast at gmail.com. <laughs> and that is why, people, I do the shout-outs to the Gmail. Right, Geordie, this is the moment. This is the moment. Try and keep this it brief. This is the day. We'll count down, and we just want to say really quickly over each other so people listening don't know what was said. Did you like it? Hate it? Amazing? In the middle? Three? Three. Two. Two. One. It was okay. It was sucked. <laughs> It was really just like, uh, oh my god! I really, I can't, I don't know. Maybe loads of John Green has just gone. Yeah, that's the first one. Is like that, or maybe some people have just like jumped out their seats, but like, what? We've inspired road rage out there, somewhere yeah. in the world. Oh yeah, there could be accidents out there. There's some responsibility, but yeah. yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know the fan base. I don't know if I should be apologising to people, but this so, book has okay. a lot of really good reviews, and that's part of yeah. why. I don't really feel too bad about saying some bad things about this book. Um, I'll couch it first of all. This is the opening of my compliment sandwich. There are parts that I liked. I probably liked 20% of this book. 
I thought 20% of his book, when I got really used to the characters and I enjoyed spending time with them, I was like, hey, I'm having a good time reading this section. And then that section ended and the book just kept going. And I was like, oh, if only. My, I was kind of thinking before the episode, how can I describe my opinions? And I came up with this sort of uh, graphic novel metaphor. Okay. Which is this book is like a drawing with some amazing line work and rather shit shading. Like, there's I would an outline say, there. I would say I that know. if we're using the term of art, I would say this is a bit like a, um, a bit like a, 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 dot, a join the dots. And that's where my metaphor ends. It, it is just sort of, to me, this is the fancy version of joining the dots, not adding much originality at all, sort of really, really relying on the tropes and the ideas created by other people and not really adding your own spice. I mean, the name of this podcast is Is This Just Fantasy? And mm. this is the first bit where I really just go, yeah, it's just fantasy. Yeah, just it's fantasy. Not. I'm considering, I considered calling this book like a 5 out of 10 and using it as a benchmark for other books we read, but I can't even rate it that highly because there are times in this book where it isn't just straightforward there are so many books which are just straightforward fantasy which i can enjoy a lot you know one day we're gonna read aragon and i reckon it's gonna be better than this book even though it was written by a 15 year old i reckon we're gonna go back and say there's a lot more like quality writing in this book written by a teenager than this book written by a grown man I'm coming out swinging. Duncan, this I have more swinging. notes for this one book than for all the rest of uh, the books we've read combined. Uh, now, I think this shows the difference in how we've walked away from this. Because mm-hmm. you have definitely come down. You, this is a negative, if people haven't picked up, a negative slant. For me, this book, even almost in a worse way, I walked away with almost complete indifference. My genuine thoughts I was having, I was like, firstly... I, I, I'm probably not going to read the rest of The Faithful and The Fallen. That's no. that's not happening. Um, someone would have to now come up to me and really push uh, the Blood Swan saga and be like, no, 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 no. Like, John Green gets there. Because that's the thing. It's not complete incompetence. It's no, not that I don't think John it's Gwyn. Com- it's, it's competent. It's, it's adequate. It is adequate. It is just painfully adequate. It is the outline of a... Pi- it's the outline of, like, a fantasy story... But just no swerves, no twists. The only twist it sort of has is one it telegraphs to such a degree that it it just loses all impact. I think you probably know exactly what I'm, I'm referring to here. I I think I might. Let's let's give a broad sweep of um, the novel as a whole before we um before we get stuck into any specific criticisms. Duncan, okay. what's the sort of shape of this book? So the shape of this book is, it starts out and it plays itself a little interesting. At the first instance, I'm thinking, oh, are we doing a bit more of the uh, Song of Ice and Fire? Multiple perspectives, big map, lots of kingdoms, bit of a political drama. But what it falls into is an incredibly by the numbers, son of the blacksmith, stable boy, uh, witch's apprentice, all in one character. Very convenient. Um, Mm -hmm. Art is the is such is the hero's journey. 
it's the hero's journey. It's no, it's not the hero's journey. Sorry. What? It's, it's the not first even part. The hero's journey. It's like the first page of the hero's it, journey. Like it takes the entire very lengthy novel, eighty-eight chapters, hours of reading gone, um, to get to the point in the story where you're like, great, the inciting incident has happened. The the moment where the little boy's village town wherever is attacked is like the climax. Yeah, chapter four of this story, and it honestly, if it. I can't believe I'm about to throw this one out here. It made me feel that Wheel of Time, particularly after the world, was fast-paced. Oh my god! And concise. <gasps> and I have never Holy felt that. Holy mackerel! And that's not to say that there weren't little moments. But I'm gonna say I'm gonna have to throw loads of comparisons here to really get an angle because I felt well. It's easy to compare this book because it is so similar to everything else. It's so beige. I was thinking, I was comparing the, this book, the entirety of this book, to the opening third of, say, Magician's Apprentice. Right? Because, and the difference is I drew that there, the apprentice young sorcerer. But where this book just falls even short to, for me, in estimations, is the fact that no point was I having fun when the characters were sit, sat around the fire. Never was I at the table with them, eating mm. the food, the sound, the, the medieval township. It never clicked that's, with that's me. That's a really good point. Yeah, I was only ever compelled by the story. And I even say in my notes, chapter 10, finally something to get excited about. Because the basic sort of, you know, just the characters talking to one another, the dialogue is, isn't that engaging. I'd agree. There's moments of, um, particularly when it's trying to build towards, to be fair, it's young romance. It's like young kids sort of falling in love for the first time. I was just like, it basically, these characters were introduced. It had a small moment. Wait, where? Uh, his sister, Sawen. That's pronunciation probably gone wrong. Uh, his sister. All right, this is going to be, all right. This is, um. if we ever decided to do a drinking game, I was thinking just today. Um, one of the big things would be every time Duncan mispronounces a name, we shouldn't start that game until we finish this episode at least because you, people are going to die because there are a lot of really difficult uh, Celtic names in this. And Well, she has this, a light rose of the character called... Do you know what? I might have even gone this wrong. Ronan. You got it. Brilliant. And it, it just felt like... I felt this was an opportunity... So... To build layers. Um, okay. I have to, like to talk about Ronan. But yes, you're right. Let me finish this point, though, man. Because it mm, is just mm, the mm. fact that this is an opportunity. This is the thing. It's not that it was necessarily done badly. It's just... It just made me go, this is a missed opportunity. Because this was an opportunity to make me care before something happens later on. And when something happens later on... And, you know, we're going to drop the spoiler thing for... This is book club, guys. You don't need to read the book. Yeah. You're welcome to come for the tea and biscuits. But... You're not missing about... out on much. And the fact is that it's so by the numbers means that, like, the stuff we told you about here, like, Blacksmith's son, town gets set on fire. We've revealed most of the story already just selling the premise. Because this one is the premise. This is the first part. This is Act 1. Mm. And it doesn't need... And do you know what? For 650 pages, I kind of expect more than just Act 1. I would have liked at least a bit of two, please. Yeah, you got to get your money worth. You're, what you're trying to say is that the interaction between Cohen and Ronan is so just half-hearted. Like, the idea that 
one of your main characters, a perspective character. You know, this would be your equivalent of, like, the Arya Stark to your Jon Snow, um, has, like, a romance, and then her romantic interest dies a couple of chapters later. That should be big. That should be tragic. But it's not, because Ronan just comes out of nowhere. And, and there's no Ronan. real connection between them at all. The romance almost entirely happens off screen. Completely. They actually almost go between chapters. We come back to the character's perspective. And and just to be clear, we need to make it clear. We felt nothing. You might have felt something. If you did, well done. But I don't think you have to be particularly jaded on the tropes of the fantasy genre not to have felt anything when... I'm going to call her Sawen again. Sawen's love Ronan dies in this book it has mm-hmm. it could have had so much punch and it doesn't and that's a small example but it's representative of so many other character beats throughout this mm-hmm. book oh Jordy, over to you I need a moment let's yeah let's broaden the horizon um Duncan was very right in saying that uh this book is supposedly inspired by A Song of Ice and Fire because it has this big landscape there's there's all these nations there's all these different political powers and it fails to live up to that because it's not politically politically sophisticated and it doesn't have sophisticated or especially different characters. How many perspective characters are there in this book, Duncan? Do you want to count them out with me? Yes. Now, it's interesting this because in many respects, there are like more main ones, I would just say. And then it's like, I would say there's, yeah, there's kind of like a main set and then a sort of a secondary set. So yeah. let's go for the main set. So... Well, this is where the name, the name mispronunciation game gets That's started. That's why you're doing this, Duncan. Corbin. Well done. I've been pronouncing him Corbain, and then literally as I went to do that, I went, nope, nope, that's probably <laughs> not it. Um, well done. Your instincts, they served you well. You, had, you, you were about to say it. The hairs in the back of your neck rose up. You sense danger. I've fallen into these traps before. Castell. Well done. Interesting thing about Castell, um, you can, you pronounce his name right, I forget his name all the time. I've had to, whilst writing out my notes, had to go back up to different parts of my notes to remember his name. And he is not a minor character. Then we have uh, Veridus. Yeah. Interesting yes. name, because Veridus to me sounds like it would come from like Verity. Like, you know, like a really Christian name. Odd choice for this book, right? Anyway, moving on. Um, and then those guys I would call sort of the, the principal three. Then falling on for that, we have what the opening perspective and sort of the, the villain perspective of Evenus. Evenus. Yep, that, that's it. Then obviously we have Sewen, as already established. And then finally Main we have... sister sort of just sees a different perspective on the same situation as Corbin. So she doesn't have a lot to add to the story because she just is there to see things which Corbin isn't allowed to see yet. I think that's a very fair analysis of her. And then finally, the guy who gets, in my perspective, the bit of the shaft, because I think he could have been far more interesting. Yeah, yeah. This is the missed opportunity guy. And this is Camlin. Yeah. And Camlin is, he is a rogue. He is Mm -hmm. a member of sort of a dark brotherhood that hide out in the forest. And he starts this story by doing uh, an eva. He's part of an attack on mm-hmm. the main. I'm going to go on the main guy, the classical hero, Corbin's, mm-hmm. 
not his hometown, but uh, a settlement near him. And, he, and one of Corbin's friends dies. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, we'll get his perspective. One inch of more dilemma. And Camlin does go for an arc. He, he does switch from sort of the bad guys to the good guys. Yep. He, he swaps but sides. He... It's the least dramatic switching of sides ever. Like, it's At literally no in the middle of a fight that he, like, chooses to join the side of the good guys. And there are no complications to this. The moment he's like, I'm swapping sides, everyone's like, great, thumbs up, you've swapped sides, we trust you completely now, please, come hang out with our rescued princess and these children whom you could easily kill after you killed some of our children. Not only that, but the people that point out that this is, like, a bad idea are made out to be sort of the the enemy. Like, they're Yeah, the, and they do you, it for, like, two sentences, you? and then it's fine. Like, Corbin could have such an... Because Corbin's one of his best childhood friends, dies. It's never mentioned again! No. It's never mentioned again! This guy kills his childhood, one of his childhood friends, and at no point when he's face-to-face with this bloke does he go, Hi. Like, he doesn't even go, Did you kill him personally? Were you just part of the attack? Like, what yeah. happened? He just... It just doesn't come up. And again, yeah. people, maybe, maybe John Gwynn hits it all out of the park in the sequel... But we're just talking about malice here. And if I was malice concerned, this is just not addressed. So in chapter 10 is when his friend Dylan dies. Uh, It's like there's an attack. My notes for that chapter say, finally, something interesting happening in this book. Chapter 10. It's a long time to wait. And then I wrote, there's too much shouting in this book for this narrator. As normal, I listen to the audiobook. And it really exemplifies his book, a huge pet peeve I have for um for audio editing and that is duncan when the narrator has to do shouting by going like this duncan i'm shouting i'm definitely not whispering into my microphone the reason people do that is to not like blow out their carefully tuned microphones they don't want to have to change the gain it complicates a recording session but if you have a book which is very shouty and this book is Maybe you should have a recording session just dedicated to shouting. Like, you don't have to shout loud. You just have to sound strong and deliberate and a little louder than normal. You don't have to do a full-on Sean Schemmel. Um, But no, just weird loud whispering. Chapter 11, my notes say, Oh no, not Dylan. Remember all the good times together we had. Like, um... He appears in one scene in this book. It reminds me, and this is another reference I'm just going to throw out there. I remember once when I was younger playing a video game called Fable, uh, Fable 3. And there's a bit in that where your love and your life is, your character's love of their life is about to be sentenced to death. And this scene happens in the first six minutes. And it's like, I don't know this character. And the game's like, no, but they're the love of your life. Don't you know that? And you're like... Yeah, but I've literally only been here six minutes. What? Mm. Why would I care? And that's why I feel about Dylan. It's like, I, I don't know Dylan. Like, I, and even then, Corbin doesn't seem that f- upset about Dylan. Nope. <laughs> yeah, he gets over it pretty, pretty quick. <sighs> Corbin is the character whom I enjoy spending time with the most because it's very clear that that the author sort of knows what he's doing with him. All his scenes are pretty well laid out. You always know the thrust of what he's feeling. And, you know, he does have the sort of his own voice. You know, he has a distinct character to him. 
He's not exactly breaking the bank, but I don't need a fantasy protagonist to, to do everything new and exciting. I can be really happy with the farm boy turned hero. I'm more let down by the fact that this book has, I've, I we didn't actually count, but what is what, six perspective characters? Yeah, six. Six perspective characters. How many does this story actually need? I would argue it's two. If you really wanted to, you can make it four by doing those things where you occasionally get a Cohen chapter or an Evnis chapter. But you only need Corbin and Veridus. Yes. It's the simple way to answer that. Yes, it very much feels like um, Corbin and Veridus, they represent the two real sides of this conflict. Corbin's doing his hero right. journey. He's off to He's off to seek his fortune eventually. He's just got to train and beat the bully first. And Veridus is our eyes on the antagonist. Or the man set up to be the antagonist. And to be fair, this is a decent idea. I like this. Because what we see is this figure... Yeah, it is decent. I've seen it done better. A lot better. And as a result, I'm a bit disappointed by it. I didn't say I loved it, but I like the idea. So for the people who have not read this book... Veridus has a perspective on a character called Nathar. Nathan. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Sorry. For that one. I feel like I'm and bullying him. Because he is people. This is our relationship. No, I shouldn't joke about that. Yeah. Um, he has a fact, and the idea is that he is sworn to him. It's almost. Oh, okay, I'm going to make another reference here. It's almost a bit like uh, Guts and Griffiths in the Golden oh, Age of oh, Berserk. Is it, is it a, a bit is like it a, Guts and Griffith? Or is it almost bit. exactly like Guts and Griffith? Down to almost parallel scenes. I really like a series called Berserk. I may have mentioned it in a previous episode. Um, so when you have Diet Griffith in the fair, it's a bit disappointing. <laughs> It is, because it has potential. Because what we're seeing here is Veridus is loyal to Nathair. Nathair has been kind to him. He's given him opportunities to rise through the ranks of society. He's allowed him to prove himself. And really, when Veridus is with Nathair, he finally feels that kind of validation in his life. That's good. Unfortunately, Nathair's the villain. And he's the villain because uh, the evil god of this world has picked him to be his chosen evil one and those are people mm. have lied to him to make convince him he is yes ever and i do, i do like in this book that um that you know that nefer doesn't realize he's the bad guy like often you have it so that the villain you know everyone's the hero of their own story this book does a really good job of of taking that the extra mile where he doesn't just think oh i'm a good guy he thinks he's like the messiah. He thinks he's the chosen one. The agents of evil around him have specifically framed themselves to appear like um, like the prophecy in this book. To say, yeah, we are um, on your side. You fulfilled some of the tenets of this prophecy. So you're the good guy. You have to find the, you have to find the evil one, though, and kill him. I can't believe we're praising it now. But yeah, I think that this is, one this thing... This praise. Well, no, here's the thing. I think that's pretty good. The problem is, is that John Gwynn's kind of trying to, for 
a good portion of his book, and thankfully he does give it up, for a good portion of his book, he's trying to make you go, well, who could it be? Is it, um, is it Corbin? Or is it Nefer? Who is the, uh, the hero? And that's a sort of the author doth protest too much moment, where if he hadn't tried so hard to sort of muddy the waters, I would have appreciated it more. Uh, I've actually forgotten what the gods are called in this, Duncan, I, which is a bit silly. But could you remind me, please? So the evil god is Azroth. Oh, come on, you're setting yes. me up for names here, aren't you? Um, no, 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 I'm not. I genuinely have forgotten. You mispronounce things, I forget things. That's that's our dynamic. But yeah, and Azroth. Elion. Yes, Azroth so and Elion. Good god. Thank you. Yeah. What... Mm, I, I'll bring this up later. I have something I want to say about the good and evil dichotomy in this book. I want to come back to that. That's fine. Let me jump in here then and just dole out a little bit more praise to Nathair. Sure, go ahead. Because I think what he does here, uh, John Gwynn, which I really appreciated, is that when Nathair, late in the story, gets a bit more twisted, he does sort of the darker deeds... He really, for me, sold it that Nathair's like, no, I'm the chosen one of God. Thus, mm-hmm. everything that I do has to be for mm-hmm. the greater good. And yep. I brought that Nathair 100% believed that. Yeah, and I, I agree. That was well I done. think that is quite well handled. And I also think that uh, Veridis, following Nathair in this first book, and I'm not going to lie, don't know a series. I'm making a prediction here, though. Uh, he'll reveal the error of his ways and Veridis will betray Nether at some point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, just a prediction. But I also thought why Veridis was completely taken in by Nether and taken in by the whole thing. In fact, if it wasn't for the tropes of the genre, I may not have bought, you know, seen it as obvious. It's only because the rest of the book or other elements of this book rely so heavily on the tropes that mm-hmm. I then saw the tropes in this story arc and then went... Ah, I see where we're going. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. My my experience of this book was improved by accident, by two accidents intersecting one another to make my experience of this book better. One was that because I was listening to the audiobook instead of reading the book, there's a scene in this book where a prophecy is read, and it it's really like... It's very conventional. Literally, someone opens a book and reads a prophecy aloud. It's very by the numbers. But because it was just sort of read out all at once, I couldn't really take it all in. And because I'm listening to the audiobook, I couldn't just jump back and like read it through again at my leisure or say, put my bookmark in. And then if something happened in the book, I go back to that page to see how it compared to the prophecy. I kind of forgot about the prophecy. And I think that improved my experience of reading this book a lot. Because I wasn't so focused on the ticking of the prophetic boxes. Like, I forgot the line. And Storm and Shield shall, like, come beside him. So when he names his pet wolf Storm, I go, I didn't go, oh yeah, of course, yeah, obviously. Um, That just went straight over my head. Oh, the second accent I should make clear is that I have dyspraxia, so I don't remember shit. Well, 
like I said, whatever makes your reading experience better for you is valid. Uh, I think the other po- point there is that he gets a wolf, which he names Storm. And then a little while later in the novel, he names his horse Shield. Yes. And it's just like, for, when you're reading that, for me, it's just like it's like that little click where I just went, oh, okay then. That's nice. Not literal, but literal enough. Yeah, here's my um here's my notes for chapter six where he gets his um where he gets his wolf cub. Uh chapter twenty six. A wolf cub? Are you fucking kidding me? This is hack shit. And he called her storm, kill me now. I'm almost upset that I called you this extent of pain. I feel like we need to just like explain our reading experience. Because for me, this book I had to be very methodical. I literally went, right, we're recording the uh, podcast in 10 days. Book club's in 10 days. Right, I got to read 60 pages a day. That's my pace. And I just went, stuck to that, like a metrodome. And that's how I kind of read it. And I think that's ambiquivocal of then my feelings of just blasé. You seem to have gotten through this faster and with much more hatred and passion. Yeah, I read this through pretty quickly. Um... It you know as much as I wasn't really compelled by the book, it did have enough of enough pace to it at certain points. Where I was like, I just got to get through this section, and there's a certain slice of life quality to it, especially in the Corbin chapters, where you just see like someone like practicing sword fighting, and like you know raising a horse or something like that. I found that sort of comforting, and those are the chapters I was like, hey, this is pretty good. It was a bit, those chapters were also very repetitive, which sort of lost from all the nice, quaint, cottage core enjoyment I could get out of them. I need to ask you a very important question, because this frustrated me in this book, and I tried to articulate this to my partner earlier, and I couldn't quite get it. So hopefully you having read it mm-hmm. can vibe with me. Geordie, I can did try. you have a problem with the scales in this book? Because I can never understand how big... Like, Corbin is no one important. He's a little blacksmith. No, he's a blacksmith right. boy. Yeah, he's running around with the princess, sitting in the hall. I'm like, are they saying king? I'm thinking medieval, but maybe I should Maybe, obviously, with the naming scheme, I should be thinking more Celtic Hall. But then other things will happen. I'll go, mm, oh, wait, so yeah. maybe we are on more of an epic, large-scale stage. But then something else will happen. I'll go back like, oh, no, wait, how big are uh-huh. these kingdoms again? I mean, they got to the wood in, like, two days. Yeah, the size of kingdoms and the distance between things was really confusing to me. Um, for one thing, authors decide to write in using leagues instead of miles. Come on, man. I will accept Come on. that artistic choice. Don't do that. But what I do struggle with is I at mean, no point did I really have a firm grasp. If a character was like, we're off to this place, I'd be like, is that a week? Is that a month? Sometimes it's 10 days. Does it matter? Like, does it matter how far you travel? Because you just appear in one place and then go back. There's only one time in this book where travel means anything and it actually doesn't matter. Someone goes, hmm, you said you'd be back by this time and yet you're back early. How strange, as if you took some sort of shortcut and then never brings it up. Never brings it up. Like, he's like, oh, I got you. I know you were lying. And then oh, does nothing. Oh, uh, au contraire. I must stand on this book's defence. It does become relevant. It is a contributing factor. So what's been referenced here, people, is that the not evil, Nefer, uh 
gets the local islanders who are not in the good books to give him a lift on their boats to get to this battlefield quicker and his daddy said no thank you the king of the land and when he gets back this adds to his daddy the king going son i'm very not happy with you i need you to stand down and it's it's he gets mad at him for other reasons. He finds out about their allegiance through other means. But it's, it's, it's adding to the scale, isn't it? It's about the small transgressions for Nathan. Like, it starts off, I just got on a ship. You're right, actually. It's, you're right, actually, because the lie comes out and it's the lie which matters. You're right. That is that is not fair. There we go. We're redeemed in the eyes of John Gwynn fans. We did, yeah. John Gwynn's fandom can no longer um, levy that charge at us. Um, I mentioned that it's hack shit that he gets a wolf cub called Storm. Yes. I, um, was trying to remember some characters, some minor characters and location names. So I was looking to see if this, um, book had a wiki. Um, bad sign. It does, but only the first book and not even all the main characters have a wiki page. So I don't think the fandom for this book is massive. The I found the image for um for Corbin's page. Corbin's page, you know, the main character's book. The synopsis of his character doesn't actually extend to the end of the book. But the image they've chosen to depict him on his wiki page is fan art of Jon Snow. Well, that's a that summarizes a lot, doesn't it? It does, doesn't it? It really does. Speaking of pastiche characters, isn't it kind of weird how... I've already forgotten his name. Is it Kestel? Castell. Castell, yeah. I, Duncan, I cannot remember his name. At one point I was calling him Kendall. <laughs> um, uh, at, he, at one point, like, he has to leave his uncle's house and says, Oh... Uh, things have gone too bad here. I have to go away and join this group of like far off knights who do battle with the dangers of the wilds. And then in the time he spends away, they become like his true family. So it's Jon Snow. Off page though. Just be clear. Off page they become his true yeah, family. Yep, 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 yep. They're like, oh, these are my families now. This is my family now. I don't need to go back to my uncle. Duncan, I... Don't think he actually speaks to anyone in this group. I don't remember a single line of dialogue exchanged between him and any other character except the guy who's already his best friend. Yes, once again, that's all true. I, I was really just trying to wrap my brain there to find like a counterpoint. There is one counterpoint and something that we haven't brought up yet, which I think okay. in many respects is such this story arc. And I, I bring it up with Castell, because Castell has this story okay. arc too. You may now know what I'm referring to. Is it bullies? The bully! The bully that yeah. hates him. Bullies. Like, I appreciate it. It like the idea of sort of the school or, or the child bully who actually it gets more serious. Yeah. Again, this is not a bad idea or concept. It's just the way it plays out in this book. Both is given too much attention and doesn't really pay off too much yeah absolutely i this was one of my biggest criticisms in the whole book is the character of raf um his 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 bully 
Corbin's bully, Raph, like, he's, he appears in chapter one. He's very obviously um, the original foil. He's someone whom Corbin will eventually overcome, like, in a physical confrontation. He has to learn to be brave, he has to learn to use a sword, and one day he'll be able to beat up his bully, and that's when you know that he'll be a man, Duncan. That's how you prove you're a man, Duncan. It's through physical violence. This is a very healthy attitude to instill in readers. He doesn't even tell you that story once. No, no, he, it's Jordy? like eight because times. Castell has it's a like, bully too. Like 15 times throughout this book, Raph and Corbin will have some kind of confrontation. There's the original scene where they where he gets beaten up, and then there's a scene two chapters later where he gets beaten up. And then there's a scene a couple of chapters later when they get into a bit of a kerfuffle, and then he makes him, like, break into the, the witch's hut and steal something to prove his courage. Um, and then there's a scene later where they fight with swords... And there's a scene later where they almost fight with swords. And there's a scene later where their dads fight. And there's a scene later where his where the bully and his dad confront the boy and set their dog on him. And then there's a scene later when they when they get into their first like lethal fight, um, where like he's they find Raph bullying someone else. Oh, not to be confused, the other scene where he sees Raph bullying someone else and tells him to like shove off. And then his sort of, uh, and then the wolf attacks Raph, and they have to send the, the wolf away. But it's a complete plot cul-de-sac because there's no actual consequence to the wolf leaving because the wolf just gets to come back, and everyone just forgets that it attacked a boy. And Jordy, while you're so passionate about this, why don't you tell the uh, our lovely listeners what's the climax of this plot arc? Where does it go in I'm gonna- this book? I have to, I, I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to tell you that. But first, I have to introduce you to another character. Because um, Castell also has a bully. Who behaves oh, yes, in remarkably similar ways. One thing, this is the character who I was actually kind of afraid to pronounce the name of. Because when I was listening to the audiobook, um, I'm not going to taunt you this, uh, Duncan. In the audiobook, it's pronounced Ja'el. Like, basically like Superman's dad. <laughs> And um, and I was terrified that it was going to be spelt G-A-E-L because then I would have discovered that the Dark Souls community had been pronouncing Gale wrong this whole time. But luckily, it's spelt with a J. Slave Knight Gale is safe from authentic pronunciation. But I still pronounced it Jail in my head the entire read. Fair enough, fair enough. Um, Jail is so single-mindedly focused on being a bully. Oh, he puts effort. He puts some serious effort in. He is willing to die for the cause of bullying his cousin for reasons which are never explained. They allude to the sins of his father and he's like, what's that? And it's never unpacked. Nope, it's never unpacked. There's an illusion. I originally thought, oh, is it like a succession thing? He's thinking... Uh, if I bump him out of the way, I'll definitely succeed. But I don't think that's really the case either. No, because I mean, Jill... he definitely has the better claim. Yeah. So I don't know what he wants. And also, he does it badly and at risk. Like, he literally tries to murder him in a camp surrounded by witnesses. Yep. And, and then he, he hires has... people with his own goal to kill him. And this is that they don't ever... He never gets, like, found out nope. or comeuppance. People just go, ah, oh, 
you and Joel, they've just got to put your childhood differences beside him. You're like, he's tried to murder him twice. Yep. Yep. Also, all these Billies have so many... To be fair, maybe this is a good analysis. Maybe this is a good look at uh, culture and how Billy culture builds in actual society. But they have so many diehard friends who are like, yeah, I'll, I'll go murder people with you. Yep. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm do or die. I'm with you all the way to the end. Even, Let's do some um, homicide, baby. Even like uh, Corbin, his example, he's literally friends with the, like the princess of the realm. Yep. And they're like, now nah, let's go. Let's kill him now. Right in front of the princess. Yep. Like what? <sighs> uh, so what Duncan was alluding to earlier with the conclusion of this book is when shit is going down, it's the end of, like, it's the end of the book. Um, the armies are at the gates. They're going to, they're like, this town is being laid siege to. The wolf was sent away because it attacked Raph, but it's been able to come back because the dog helped out in a previous scene in the section of the book that was actually quite well written. And we're no longer in that part of the book. And Raph says, that dog attacked me it should be sentenced to death. It was sentenced to death. Therefore, I want the right to kill it. And and Corbin says, "Well, I'm not going to um, I'm not going to let that slide. So we're going to deal." Now, earlier in the book, Raph had his sword taken away. He was no longer permitted the right to wield arms. So I'm not sure where he got the sword from. Nor does he have the legal right to declare this duel. So that's um, you know, that doesn't make any sense. But I don't care. I'm not nitpicking. It's just a weird thing. They have their duel. Their first proper duel with naked steel. And Corbin wins immediately. And that's not bad. That's actually quite good. That's good writing. Because it shows that the confrontation has sort of become beneath Corbin. Like, he, like it's no longer even a challenge to take this guy down. And he wins the fight. Everyone cheers. And then things go really badly wrong. The bad guys, through treachery, the gate is unlocked. They they raid. People are dying everywhere. There's a pitched battle in the streets. The king is murdered. And Raph is like, oh, now I'm really going to get revenge. This is the perfect time to enact my vendetta. It's that single-mindedness that I almost want to find commendable. Like I said, these villains are like... I, you know what? I'm not dedicated to any cause that much. Um, that I'd be willing to die just just to get a little bit of sweet vengeance. That he started bullying. You know, he started this one. He's like, no, I don't care about the king, my kingdom, any of my friends, my father. I just want to try and murder this guy who's yep. somewhat embarrassed me. Yep, yep. He beat me up a couple of times. He's not even on the side of the bad guys. This is completely coincidental. It is completely parallel. And so Corbin has to kill his bully. And his and his bully's father, his wolf, like, rips his throat out. And that is the conclusion of Raph. That's the end of his story arc. The relationship between them never changes. There's never a moment where they come to understand one another. There's never a moment where they develop past their original enmity or through circumstance are forced to fight together. That would be too exciting. There's a really good bit in um, The Poppy War where the main character 
her relationship with her bully goes through like a dozen different transformations. Even when they hate each other's guts, the different flavors of distrust or hatred or animus or jealousy changes all the time throughout the book. But it is stagnant between Corbin and Raph. And he makes you think that it might go a different way. And I say that because early on in the book, they, he, there's this attempt, I'm going to call it an attempt, to give Raph this extra dimension. Because we said that, you know, this guy, he's being abused by his father. But it's not used. It's not used. I'm shrugging. I'm shrugging. Yeah, I know. Like, it's so... It is just... It's the, the, gentlest, the gentlest breath, the lightest fart towards a character having any kind of internal world who isn't just Corbin. Like, oh, it, like it, it, it vaguely gestures at, well, obviously, he is externalizing his abuse. Um, does he get a chance to develop that character or separate from the behaviors that, that his father instilled in him and pushed him down the line? Does he reject the lessons which his father has taught him? No. Every time this book has the chance to make a bold choice, it cowers in fear. And I will give you the chief example of that. The chapter I just told you about was chapter 86, when Raph attacks Corbin. Chapter 88, my notes say, it's the same scene again! Some of you might be thinking how earlier Georgie made a reference about voice actors shouting into their microphones and uh, messing up the game. Uh, we are aware. I'm sure this is an intentional parody point he's making. He's being satirical. <laughs> I, Duncan, I faced away from my microphone. I was taking measures. <sighs> Duncan, you say it. What, that this is the same chapter? The same scene plays out again. Yeah, it's the same. It's... Jael and, and, and Castell. The exact same scene. The only difference is in the conclusion. Because Castell's yep. story concludes with his, I'm going to say apparent, apparent death at Jael. Because Castell makes the silly assumption that we're at war now. We'll put those petty things behind us and fight for the greater good. And Jael just stabs him. In the chest. And not just he trusts him. There is a scene where one side suddenly in, commits an act of treachery against another. An all-out brawl starts taking place. World comes completely chaotic. And someone chooses this moment, despite not being allied to their enemies, to take this moment to achieve personal revenge. It is the exact same scene. The exact same. The only difference is that Castell ends up with a sword in his chest. But it is... It really defies belief. And despite the fact like, that that... And, I, and you could say, well, isn't that maybe intentional? Is it maybe parallel? I would be willing to hear that out if Castell wasn't already so fucking boring. I liked Castell's relationship with his, like, sworn-sworned manservants, Makin. Okay, cool. Interesting. How does it compare to the relationship between the sworn sword to Nefer? How does it compare to their relationship? They're, they're the same relationship. What are you on about? Um, no, it's not, it's not, because it's not that, sorry, it's not the same relationship. That's unfair. It's not the same, but I don't think it's as well written. No, it's the problem with it. 
is that it's once again it's someone exhibiting a uh, sort of a level of like blind faith. Uh, Mackin, who I do love, he he's kind of lovable in the fact that he's like, you know, uh, oh my god, Castell, I've gone to call him Veridis. Castell, mm. I know you're being bullied. I know everything, but you know what? I'm going to be your friend through this. I'm not actually going to like do anything or take any proactive action, but I'm going to stick by your side. Um, thanks, and that's nice. There are books where the supporting characters really add so much depth to the world and they give a chance for the characters to bounce different um, perspectives off of one another. One of the great strengths of the Expanse novels is the crew of the Rosinante is able to have all these different character dynamics, the way in which people interact differently with one another. So... A character who could have very little to him, like Amos Burton, gets so many different opportunities to interact with so many different characters to bring out so many different aspects of his character. But but take these two characters. They only speak to one another. They only talk to one another. They never really have chats with, with anyone else. Like, Castell occasionally chats like, a random guy, or his uncle, or to his cousin, but there's never these complicated conversations where ideas shoot back and forth from lots of different characters in the scene. It's really like there's a handful of important people, and everyone else sits, and they watch. And brief. And now, first thing, naughty you, we do not mention sci-fi, come up with a fantasy reference to explain this dynamic. The second thing with okay, there is a small interaction with Veridis, uh, where Veridis goes, "Oh, I quite like Cassell. I don't want him to get hurt. I might try and like put him away." But that doesn't really go anywhere. No, um, they just become friends immediately. And that's the and thing. Re- obviously, they become friends because they're the same person. Like, why wouldn't you become friends with someone who's just like you? We have so much in common. <laughs> but with Mackin, I just look at him and I think of all of the, I don't know, the sort of the look at fantasy and look at all the kind of the buddy. The, the champion and their companion combinations. And I just feel like, is that what he is John Green going for in my career? The loyal manservant. Because I can think of other loyal manservants. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm thinking, firstly, the best loyal manservant in the world, uh, which is Sam Ganji. Sure, yeah. Sam Ganji has his own desires, his own goals. Yes, he will stick by Mr. Frodo for thick and thin, and don't say it's unfair to compare John Gwynn to Tolkien. Like, I know this is first book. I get it. But when, as a reader, all these alternatives are he's out there. Read, he's read Tolkien. You know he's read Tolkien. He's a fantasy author. He can take inspiration from the people who came before him. He's certainly done that before. Who's McKin's family? Who's his father? Where did yeah. he get him from? Who's his family? Does he have goals? What's his retirement plan? I just want something. What is he... Exactly. What's his retirement plan is such a simple question. What am I going to do when this war is done? If you're writing about any soldier in a story, unless you're deliberately doing like a Heart of Darkness thing where there is no future and you cannot conceptualize of a time in your life without war, you should think to yourself, what was my character doing before war started and what would they do when it is done? Not for Mackin. Not for Mackin. And while we're at it, name me one that you do know their retirement plans. Like, Corbin just wants to keep living his simple village life. Corbin's a boy. Fair, Fair enough. He just, he, exactly. That's a, that's a character whose entire future gets rug pulled from out from them. And then, 
What does Cohen want? I don't know. It's his sister. It's the main character's she wants... sister. She's a perspective character, all of her she own. She wants to be with Ronan and... For three chapters? That's the thing. And she wants to be, she wants to be respected and allowed to do more uh, uh, in this society. Obviously, it's very patriarchal. She wants the boundaries to be sure, loosened yeah. and so that she can more freely uh, go into these other roles. I'm not quite sure. Exactly. And I can think think about all those great scenes where she steps up and challenges authority and tries to enact her goals. Like, you remember them, Duncan, right? It's a trick question. Yes. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> the female character in this book, Duncan, I don't think they're great. It reminds me a lot of... Um, do you know, I'm going to to the Belgrade. And I actually think the Belgrade is better. So. I was going to ask you about this. I've never read a Belgariad. I kind of was reading this. I'm like, I think this is what this is the Belgariad, right? I've never read it, but I feel like this is what it is, right? It's it's not. The Belgariad okay. is different because the Belgariad is not. Well, the Belgariad first is written. Uh, I'm going to say in the 80s, 70s. I can't remember exactly when. The Belgariad though is much more. Firstly, I think it's slightly aimed younger. Did you say the 1870s? No, sorry, 80s slash 70s. The 1980s slash 1970s. Okay, I was like. What the fuck? Where this? What are you doing? Wait, what? <laughs> that that in that case, it was ahead of its time and a masterpiece. But um, where Malice is pulling a bit more from Game of Thrones, has that, those greater influences. Bulgariad is a bit more, uh, you know, traditional hero's journey, Lord of the Rings, very much in that shadow. But what Bulgariad does well that this one does not is Bulgariad, even though it's basic in the structure and the beats and the tropes, party banter characterization each member of the fellowship and it is a fellowship basically is from a different nation with a different political worldview and they continuously between locations on their journeys which you see and they have to camp and seek shelter blah 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 they're constantly bouncing out the worldviews and their different perspectives mm. and it enriches each of the characters and although i can't remember their names i can still see them all in my mind and sure i get yeah i get what you're saying also it's relative each book is relatively short punchy and moves along. Again, a still a chosen one, still a chosen one prophecy. But I think it's yep. because what makes Malice not unforgivable, just uninteresting. What the falling down of Malice for me, above the tropes, above the so the predictability, because other things are tropey and predictable. You know, having a pet wolf called Storm is not a problem if you're playing your first D and D campaign. Um, yep. What makes this a problem is what I tried to say earlier. It is the pencil outline. But it doesn't have the shame. It's not... At no point did I feel like was any food consumed with George R. Martin. And I was like, yes, I know what's on the table. At no point in a hall could I hear the roaring of the fire. It's just like... It's almost in black and white. It's almost mm. just not quite there and not quite lived in for me. That when I tried to conjure this world in my mind's eye, I almost was toying like, is this meant to be more fairy tale bit more abstract but no it's got this poly it's such a hodgepodge of different kind of fantasy elements that it has no uniqueness and it not only does it have no uniqueness it's not even combined particularly well it's like got that, mm, that pasty it's, it's, glue just like yeah get together go if you ask me what the main influence on this book this book is it's bog standard black and white fantasy adventure with chosen one as main character you know just like not even a book in particular just a genre 
and then splash some A Song of Ice and Fire in there, the many different protagonists, the supposedly broad world and politics, and slam it into the Warlord trilogy by Bernard Cornwell. Oh. Here are these books, Duncan? Yes, that is an excellent reference. Yes. I think these were serious, that is a serious piece of this book. It's the, the extremely Celtic setting, the, the pretty, fairly good attachment to historical realism in a lot of places, um, and, not, and not being too committed to it, which I respect in this book. Uh, I think it's a pretty good balance in terms of authenticity to fantasy. Oh, I have a positive. I have a positive. I have a positive. Um, Lay it on me. Bam, bam, bam. When the, 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 the actual battles, when the shield wars are coming and things are slamming together. Nope. No. Nope. You shut the fuck up, Duncan. No, I will hold this. Uh, when he's holding a shield wall and he's talking about like stabbing his blade underneath and the ground's getting slick yep. with blood for a moment, not the whole scene, not the whole battle, but just for that little moment, I went... Okay, I'm there. No, that is one, that is stolen valor from Durfel Kadan. Um, and second of all, no, this is literally the worst part of the entire book. It ruins the story. I would have taken this book if it wasn't for the fucking shield war. What, that's the greatest military tactical, like, development yes, ever? Yes, Duncan, the greatest military tactical advantage you can have. And oh my god, boy genius Nefer just invents it. Up until now, in the world of the story, no one has ever thought of doing a shield war before. But they have shields. In Corbin's world, in his, sorry, not his world, in his town, fighting with a shield is the standard. But it's like tradition that we always go into like one-on-one -on -one duels. And I know it's there's so there's historical stupid. precedent for that. Like that's not unheard of in the real world. Well, and that's what confused me with scale. I'm like, well, that makes sense if there's maybe like five or six of you, or maybe even 20 or 30. But do you not armies. have armies of hundreds? Um, hundreds and thousands. Thousands of people. Like, it's like, very, like, if you look to times when people weren't doing shield walls, it was when like technology had surpassed the need for them because armor had gotten too good and people had to use pole axes. Or you're looking at, like, Vikings murdering monks who didn't need shield walls. If you if you were prioritizing speedy get-in and get-outs, fair enough, you probably weren't using a shield wall, but you still could use one. And this world, they say, oh, archer is dishonorable. So no one is an archer. None. Yeah. Everyone is trained to fight with a spear and a shield, and fighting with a sword exclusively is very unusual, and that's why Corbin's a bit of a strange fighter, but they don't form shield walls. But it gets even worse. It's like, it's, I can, it's so, I cannot stand this whole, making the fair a military genius is a really strong choice. And, you know, that's why Griffith is a cool character in Berserk, because he comes up with these strategies which let him win what seem like impossible battles. Those strategies work, because you see how, like, how he gets insight into his enemies. How he uses things like terrain and surprise attacks. Or even an enemy's overconfidence against them. Or, and, and so he wins by using, by using strategy. Instead of, I have devised the perfect tactic. A shield wall. I never have to adapt my strategy in the slightest. It always wins. And that's how it just goes in every scene of the book. 
And the first fight we see them use the shield wall in is a fight where the shield wall shouldn't work. They go to fight giants fighting on fucking dragons, on dregs, non-fire breathing, non-flying dragons, basically dinosaurs. They go to fight giants raiding on dinosaurs and they employ a shield wall and it works. They were using short swords. They didn't even, they threw their spears and they ran out. So now you have a bunch of little itty bitty men stabbing at giants with their little short swords and win this fight. Now when you put it like that. It's hubris. This is John Gwynn's hubris. It is stolen valor from Bernard Cornwall. Oh God, it's... Hello. Firstly. I'm listening. I have a point. I'm listening. And that doesn't take away from the fact that I still like the little moment of Veridis with his little short sword and when he's in the wall and he has this as a little description, maybe it's a paragraph, might have been a paragraph and a half, that I enjoyed myself. And I will not let this illogical lump, I felt that. That's why I so upset there's no archers because I love his, um, the Harley, uh, Ben Acorma's Harley Quinn um, okay. series, the Grail Quest. That's an archer. Brilliant. No brilliantly done. Um, sorry. Anyway, back to Malice. Yeah, exactly. You look at this situation and you think, well, why is this working here? Because then, like, the giants fall, and it's like, okay, are you having to step up over them? Because once you've killed about two giants, I think the third giant who's standing on those two giants' bodies is going to be pretty... That's a good point. I had not considered that, that giant bodies would, in over themselves, become terrain. And, they're like, and then you've also got the fact that, like, you think on a giant, if you're stabbing under your shield... All they've got to wear is a little bit of armour on their, like, shit. I, yeah, exactly. A boot. Just wear some thick, thick trousers and you're fine. Your neck is, like, your, one of your big weak spots is almost completely safe. Someone would have to swing really high with their sword. And if they have a short sword, they can't reach you. It's the worst weapon to use. Well, I tried to name a positive there. Yeah, I'm sorry, Duncan. You saw how that I really out. didn't mean to jump in like that, and I honestly would have been more chill, but um, I love I love learning about history. I love medieval history and Renaissance history and, and pre, uh, pre-Roman European history and, and, and Babylonian history. And some things that are really interesting about it is the way in which, you know, like military tactics appear over the centuries, how siege warfare is invented, how particular groups have never been conquered. Why has everyone from from Alexander the Great to Barack Obama failed to conquer Afghanistan? These are really interesting things about history. And when you write a book about war and battles and you only have one tactic, I feel like you are doing a disservice to the very idea of strategy itself. It takes, it's hard to write a clever strategy because you need to come up with a strategy. You know, John Gwynn isn't a medieval general. He can't come up with like, a brilliant off-the-cuff strategy that would make sense in this scenario. Well, I mean, he, he can, but he can't do it easily because it's difficult. But when he doesn't, and when he just relies on chaotic fights where one side wins just because they win, when he relies on fist fights 
which is always decided by someone just clocking someone in the back of the head every single time. And when one strategy wins, it's the panacea, the silver bullet. That, that is bad writing. And if you're writing about chosen ones and battles, that is a serious, the serious hole in the side of your ship. I like that metaphor you've just thrown out at the end there, because I think that it summarises my feelings. And I don't necessarily agree with everything, or at least as passionately as That's everything that you've just and said. And I have there. my own reasons but for being passionate. When you spent about the whole inside, this won't of the matter sh- to most people. Yeah, when we mentioned the whole inside of the ship. That alone would not have sunk malice in my expectations. You're right. Expectations. You're completely right. I would be so happy with this book yeah. if that were a problem, but none of the other things I mentioned were. Exactly. Like, there are plenty of books that do the same things malice mm-hmm. do, or have some of the same faults You're right, do. yes. Go ahead. But because they just do other bits well, mm-hmm. and they just do the right combination, right. it works. And that's the issue with malice. We're not saying that this is necessary in the worst example of all these faults in literature, mm-hmm. or that there aren't other books that we like that also have these faults. Absolutely. What I am trying to say is that Malice has these problems and nowhere near enough good stuff That's right. to if, bring if it up or make it worth were it. well written, if it were an, a piece of genius, it would have armour around it. And I wouldn't be able to touch these weak spots. I wouldn't even want to glance at them. I'd say, you know, yeah, you could look at this, and that's a little silly, but let's talk about how good this one thing is. If I don't have that thing to distract me, then I start to focus on these little annoying bits. <sighs> I, I don't want to use this as a like a, a stereotypical insult. Okay. But it almost made me feel like, because especially they have in this world, like uh, there's a bunch of magical items that are out there, magical acts, magical cauldron. I, at one point I wanted to say, oh, this is like someone's like homebrew D&D world. And then I just went, no, that, that's an insult to a lot of people's homebrew D&D worlds. I'm, I'm sorry. That's a low blow, Duncan. Um, so obviously the, the seven treasures is something, is part of a really important thing in this book, which we kind of haven't talked about yet. And that is how Irish this book is. Now, part of the reason I haven't brought this up um, at all is because I didn't notice that. I sadly am culturally basic. And that's... <laughs> Oh my god, no, this sounds awful now. I was about to say, you know, and as living very far away from Ireland in England, <laughs> I'm not as well versed in Irish culture. So, to be sorry. fair, they literally don't teach us about Ireland in school on purpose. I wonder why. Geordie, um teach me. So I the want reason to why I, I feel like I know a lot about this is that, for one thing, I'm very interested in uh, Celtic mythology. Um, but also, I did a lot of research on, you know, um, Irish folklore and Irish mythology and Irish, Irish pre-Christian religion because the novel series I'm currently writing actually has a lot of things in common with this, which is not good because that's a setup for me to really like this book, Duncan. It's full of stuff I'm very interested in and it really let me down. But things like, um, for example, mentioning... Dagda. The Dagda is a is a pre-Christian Irish god. The seven treasures are the seven treasures of Ireland. They are these important magical artifacts. In fact, the cauldron, which is appears at the start of a book and is mentioned frequently throughout, is the origin of the Holy Grail. I what? Sorry? No? Oh, do you want the Holy Grail? Uh, it's a uh, no, 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 no. That's the uh, cup. The cup. The 
Blood of oh, Christ. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry, yeah. I was so You're confused. Confusing yourself. Obviously, hang on. I said Dagda was a god. No, 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 no. He was a very important Irish king. Not, not a, um, not a god. There you go, mate. Easy mistake. Uh, I like the inclusion of, of giants in this story as, um, you know, an essential part. I was super let down by the fact that the giants are all bad guys. Um, I feature giants really heavily in my personal book, and the way I utilized them is, in my opinion, very true to Irish, to not Irish mythology specifically, more broadly to Celtic mythology as a whole, in that giants are essentially bad guys in most stories, but a bunch of giants are just people. Like, Guinevere, in the story of King Arthur, is a giant. Her father is a big, 20-foot-tall fairy tale giant, and she's a giant too. She's just a woman-sized giant. I actually didn't learn this concept until I played, like, God yeah, of War. Yeah, yeah, God of War is a great <laughs> example. They're like, is... yeah, giants can be whatever size, man. <laughs> giants aren't necessarily big. What would give you that impression? So that's part of the reason why uh, I'm disappointed by this book, that it deals with a lot of things I'm passionate about and therefore I'm let down about. Um, I don't like the fact that you have a book written by, written by a, a, you know, a British author who's writing about um, Celtic Ireland and yet he's instilled a, a God and Satan analogue as the main, as the main bad guys across like the cosmological war of this series, like not the nothing inspired by the authentic gods and religion of Celtic Island, but instead the one that was replaced by the brutality of Christianity. That's kind of fucked up, right? Like that's kind of that's kind of a dick move. Yeah. Um, you can definitely see it that way. I'm, sorry, I'm really trying hard to be the, like the mediator. Okay. Uh, but I know that there's not a side to mediate with. I would just, I would like to think that potentially, I don't know John Gwynn personally. Hopefully, this comes out of a passion, and maybe it was simply lost in translation. He didn't have the writing skills to really bring this across well in this book. But just taking this book on its own, that's definitely the impression it gives of its author. Uh, from my reading and clearly from your reading yeah. of it. I think we need... To, we've made our points and views on this bit quite clear and I don't want to get too down I've got the bashing it route. One more thing to say, unless you have something else you want to bring up. No, I, I, there's nothing. Honestly, I just... I want to I wanna move on <laughs> in life. All right, I want to bring up one last thing. Um, so, okay, so Duncan, the character of... Um, I've forgotten how she's called. What's the princess called? Uh, Edena? Yeah, something like that. Edana or something, yeah. Um, when, in the early parts of the book, um, Edana becomes f- friends of Cohen, right? Yes. And, like, in the way their relationship works, like, Edana will just come, like, bowling up to Cohen and see what she's up to, right? Yeah, it definitely strikes me like, uh, you know, she's this stable master's assistant, Gar, who we've not really mentioned. He's the Obi-Wan of the story. Um, yeah. And, Gar is a well-written character. I like Gar a lot. And she does. She, she comes out and she goes, hi, you've got jobs, but I'm the princess and I'm bored. Let's go play. Exactly. This happens a lot where she's just sort of hanging out with Cohen. Um, 
And she's clearly really enthusiastic about hanging out with Cohen. And she always steps up to defend Cohen and Corbin. Yeah. Did you get the impression that like, oh, obviously Idana is in love with Cohen? No. Um, sorry, I, I feel really I always sit there because my brain doesn't automatically go that way uh, to kind of read that. Mm-hmm. I do see that. Now. I think that's a very valid read- reading because she also makes a big move with Adana not being interested in any prospect for husbands. That's a real big bit exactly. of a character. And that you say it, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense. Um, mm. But it doesn't, it's not in the book. It's not in the book. You know who is in the book? Ronan. Yeah. Just at the time when they're, like, spending a lot of time together and, you know, like, they're going on horse rides together and they're constantly hanging out. Just at the time when they start to speculate about who might be interested in whom, suddenly Ronan shows up. And all of a sudden, Cohen, without ever speaking to him, aside from a couple of sentences, aside when Ronan's only... um approach towards her is to sort of stare at her suddenly she's besotted with him and he's talking about marrying her and then he tragically dies so she can be fixated on him and then she and Adana never speak again for the rest of the book firstly obviously she's besotted with him kind of um you know like feels like he dragged two characters apart who were getting a little too close together I'm really prepared to just say that I was reading too much into it that, you know, I'm uh, I'm looking for something which isn't there. Fair enough. I think what I'm seeing is a potential missed opportunity to make a character more interesting. Um, I don't think... I'm not going to give John Gwynn, based on the rest of this book, enough to say that he was even approaching that path and thought, oh, mm. no, let's back off. Because you could just re-edit it. But that, yeah, from a enough. reader's perspective, that would come across as a more interesting reading... And he makes Rowan seem all the more... I'm going to call him tragic. But that's the most tragic thing about Rowan. is that his death wasn't even tragic. Just, it was just tragic. It was literally like... He's like a woman in a refrigerator. But a man. I love that. Because you could say these like, words to... and make it sound better. Oh, the death of Rowan. It was tragic. Because it was pointless. Oh, the way... It was a pointless death. How tragic. It's like, no. I mean, it's tragic. Because it had no point to the plot. And we felt yep. nothing. Mm-hmm. She's commi- what, committed to achieve vengeance against uh, Brave of all characters. By the way, the narrator in this book made Brave Australian. I did not pick that no up. No one else in the book was Australian. From the t- that was weird. From the text. Also, other people come from Brave's homeland. He's not the only one of his nationality we meet. No. For some reason, he's, he's like, <laughs> he's like, on, mate. We're going to go out and attack the king's men, all right? That was a bad all right. The rest was perfect. I think I would have enjoyed it more listening. Like I said, reading this book, I felt like I had to get through it because I wanted to come to book club and I would hate to be the guy that doesn't read his own book for book club. And that's not the man Especially when we are quite a small book club. <laughs> yeah, we'd still the conversation a um, bit. Yeah, I've got to have something else to say in regards to Cohen and uh, Idana. Fine, but then you've got to let this dead horse lie and we are moving on with our lives to a bright new dawn. Poor shield. Poor shield are somehow alive. Wait, I, wait, he's just lost shield. Like, shield's not coming with him. He left shield behind. Whatever. So, you have a character, right? He's completely sworn and devoted to this other character. Um, his first interaction with him is to focus on how beautiful he is. 
Like, it's the first thing he describes about him upon meeting him. Um, he immediately throws himself in danger to defend him with his life. They become completely devoted and loyal to one another. They undergo a ritual where they become blood brothers and exchange each other's blood. Nefer and Veridis pushing really hard into some bromance, right? Yeah, um, I did see that. Don't want to get the wrong impression, though. So immediately after, Nefer has made him his sworn sword, the person he trusts above anyone. Constantly talks about how great and cool he is. First thing he does is, as Veridis is rising, riding along beside him, he has a dreamy look on his face, and he says, I bet you're thinking about a girl. As straight men do, we are both straight men, are we not? We're not interested in men in the slightest, except when we're bros. Do you think that might come to fruition? I think that's the most interesting thing. It's like, where could this story still be going that might have a twist and turn? I would like that. That's it would true. Give an I extra think that layer. is a, a right thing to explore. Like, if if very different affair, like, relationship became more intimate, that could be more interesting. It would add an extra layer to a Veridis discovering Nefer is the villain. And I think it, that could be very powerful. Because if they did... It would. It kind of has a bit of an issue in that you fucking know that Veridis is going to be the one who kills Nefer, right? Mate, I was convinced... That Jamie Lannister would be killing Cersei Lannister at the end of season eight of Game of Thrones. Oh my god! So me I've made mistakes, but that was what I would imagine. I imagined that betrayal. You weren't the one who made that mistake, Duncan. Um, but even if he did do like a turn on Nefer, if it had that extra layer, or even better, if he then realizes Nefer is the villain, but then because mm-hmm. not just because of their like loyalty, uh, you know, sworn sword relationship, but because of that intimate relationship, he decides. Actually, mm-hmm. no, I'll stand by him regardless. That would be interesting. I agree. I don't think that's what's going to happen, but that would be interesting. I agree. I, agree. <laughs> uh, I feel like I was really mean to this book. You were. Um, we both were. But I don't think... I was meaner. You were meaner. I do want to say that in this book, there are seeds. There, like, John Gwynne has written many more books... And his current ongoing series is getting really positive sort of feedback out mm-hmm. there. And I would be yep. interested in giving that a go and seeing how John Green develops as an author eight books down the line. But I am not interested. Eight books? Yeah, it's four, Faithful in the Fallen, and then he does a, a trilogy, and then he's starting his new one. Um, right, but gotcha. I have zero interest of reading more Faithful in the Fallen, and I have zero interest to ever recommend it to anyone. And if anything, that's no. that's the worst. I think that must be the worst thing. If I just said, not worth your time. That's the first book which we cannot recommend in this podcast. A moment's silence for our time. Onwards and upwards. Onwards and upwards. Duncan, we've, we've lambasted this book, and I have especially. And um, that sort of leaves a bit of a sour taste in my mouth. And I want to take a moment for us to think about how we relate to the books that we study. I'm not interested in lambasting every book we come across. There are other podcasts which are about consuming bad media. There are plenty of, of podcasts about bad movies. My, my first podcast I ever listened to was The Flop House. I still listen to it every week. Oh, Geordie, when I picked this book, 
I didn't know we would get this negative reaction. I genuinely thought... I, forg- I forgive you, Duncan. I forgive I wanna, you, my, my blood brother. I want to explain to it. Like, I went, you know, the new book's getting a lot of good press. Oh, but it's an incomplete series. Let's pick the book of his complete mm-hmm. series. Thus, if it's amazing, uh, either on this podcast or off this podcast, I can go on and read it. And that could be really fun. Yep. And I am kind of crestfallen, yeah, I... but I'm also happy that I picked something new. And I'm not going to, if anything... It inspired a conversation, and it inspired passion in us. And that's that's good. My point in talking about the negative reaction we've had to this book is that I don't want us to slag on books for no reason. I want us to do it for a reason. I feel like we were justified this time because this is our first book where it didn't advance the genre of fantasy in any way. It didn't make any big waves. And John Gwynn has had a successful career from here. He's keeping on writing these good books... He can survive a nasty review from us. Absolutely. I think the main thing to remember is, firstly, if you enjoyed it, good for you. We'd love to hear your opinions at isthisjustfantasypodcast.gmail.com. I really would love to hear the opinion of someone who loved this book because I'd really like to see what which parts of it engaged people. And I really want then people to know, say if you have read his more recent work and really enjoyed it, maybe mm. you'll be a bit more tempered. Maybe you'll, you'll go, ah, oh, maybe I'll get this one from the library. Um, before I go and put the money down, so take that as. That may be true. That may be true, but you'll save um you'll save yourself by jumping to the one with the big monsters on it. Duncan, this is the part of the show where I pick our next book. Now, as we know, of the two of us, I'm the person who's more aligned to the world of YA. I enjoy uh, some YA books. I enjoy reading someone's YA debut. It's part of why I have high standards for something like um, like Malice, something which is formulaic. I'm happy with a formula. I just need something that changes the game a little bit. I want us to read a lot of YA fantasy novels. But, and this is a big but, Duncan... A lot of criticism which gets levied at fantasy novels and YA fantasy novels and fantasy novels written by and for women, a lot of it can just come down to straightforward misogyny. I'm going to agree with you. I haven't read a lot of that particular branch of fantasy literature, the YA, uh, particularly mm, with yeah. that more uh, written by women for women and uh, mm-hmm. because... Shockingly, that's not what I've been doing. That's not been marketed to me or recommended to me. But that's why this podcast is going to work because we bring things to one another which we've never experienced. But yeah, as part of like the cultural zeitgeist, especially online, I know what you're. I get what you're saying. I have seen people give these reactions to uh, books within that kind of sphere. Yeah. Oh, where's this going? And because of that, I I I want us to approach all these books fairly i want us to look them dead in the eye to look at their qualities to find their best parts to find the parts that don't work and i want us to make sure that we pledge to watch ourselves to be wary and vigilant of any way in which internalized misogyny could creep into our analysis duncan let us slit our palms and make this blood pact of one another that we do solemnly swear 
to give books their best judgment, no matter who they're written for, no matter who they're written by, and no matter how much of a Mary Sue the main character is. I do swear, to the best of my ability, to put aside any of my preconceived notions on a text and judge it as I read it. The pact is made. Now, our blood is cursed forever. Should we ever break our vow, then people will give us bad reviews on iTunes. Geordie, <laughs> uh. you've kept me hanging. What's your book? To cut us off of the pass, we're going to read an incredibly lambasted book. A book which has received a great deal of negative judgement. I think not because of the quality of the text. And mind you, I read this when I was 14. That was a long time ago. We are going to read Twilight. Oh, for fuck's sake. Sorry. Yes. Obviously. I look forward to this. Duncan, you've broken the no, pact I already. Haven't. I haven't, but we have not reviewed okay. it. Okay. I just want to say that this will be a great challenge for I grew up in a time okay. when this was greatly lambasted by many people. Indeed. Some of them had not read the book, like me, but still took part in the negative discourse. But I'm happy to That's go right. back. And is it you're telling me that you're a fan of this book? No, I'm not telling you that. Okay, I'm telling you fine. that when I was 14 years old, I read this book and I remember enjoying it. Then And then I locked that secret deep inside. I could tell no one that. And I told the rest of the world how much it sucked. And as a teenage boy, I was out there lambasting the movies and the very notion of the book being popular at all. I wear the sins of a Twilight hater. And now I go back as a flagellant to bear myself before Sarah J. Mass. No, not Sarah J. Mass. Stephanie Myers, isn't it? We'll get to you later, Sarah J. Mass. Stephanie Myers. Thank you. Oh my God. You're welcome. I, <laughs> uh, to bear myself before Stephanie Meyer and say, show me once again, show me the dark places where Doth Mind has tread. Anyway, we're going to give it another go. Wow. That's fine. And if you would like to tell us your thoughts and opinions on Malice, on Twilight, or on any of the books we have covered, or yet to cover, so that's basically all of fantasy literature, uh, then please let us know. Is this just fantasy podcast at gmail.com once we love to kind of read your opinions and the interesting ones we will start to read out on the podcast once we're a little bit more established right i think that wraps up for this week so long fair travelers it's been an interesting one we'll see you again in forks washington bye guys till next time